It is great to see, as Paul said, my name is Ben. It's a real privilege to be one of the leaders here at uh, this church. And just to, if you, if you, if you are visiting us um, or you um, are, uh, you know, you're not sure why we showed that video or, or what's, why we're looking at Ephesians, basically we, we, we've been working through the book of Acts. We've taken a break in Acts now until the summer. And just as a couple of one-off sermons... Uh, we're looking at the something called the Reformation. Now, that happened 500 years ago. It's the 500th anniversary, so we thought we ought to do something about it. If you don't know what that is, don't worry. Um, I hope that you will know a bit more about it by the end of the sermon. But really, two big truths came out of the Reformation. One was salvation, so how, how people are saved. And the other is um, about the Bible. And I hope those kind of two things came across in that, that short video. We'll watch it again next week um, just to pick up on different emphasis. But what we're going to do this week is look at the first of those truths, salvation. So how can I be saved? How can I be right with God? Um, that's what we'll look at this week. And just to say there's a, there's a sermon handout on your, um, your tables if, if you're into taking notes. There's also just a box at the back that just says discussion, uh, sorry, thoughts, comments, prayer points, that kind of thing. That's because we have a discussion time after the sermon, and if you'd like to chip in on that, um, the box there just enables you to kind of write something down, perhaps, that you hear and you think, right, I want to say something about that, or I want to ask a question about about what Ben's just said there. Um, So if you want to use that, feel free to do so. Don't worry, just just to say, nobody is, is put under any pressure in that discussion time. Um, so you don't have to say anything if you don't want to. Um, anyway, let, before we come to this, let's pray, shall we, and ask for God's help. Father, we do thank you for who you are, and thank you that you are a God who's in control of all things, uh, a God who um, speaks to us, and not only speaks to us, but wants your words to be heard, wants your word to go out, and your truth to be known And Father, we do pray that for us here in this room this morning, that we would know your truth. We would know uh, the grace that you have poured out on us in the person of your Son. And we pray that that would uh, change us this morning. Father, we do pray for the children again, uh, that they would know Jesus, that they would know that it's not them who saves them, but it's you. And please, Father, as we, uh, uh, we pray these things, uh, asking that your spirit would work for your glory. Amen. How can I be right with God? That is the uh, question. That was the question at the heart of the Reformation. Uh, how can I be right with God? Now, I don't know how much you ask yourself that question, but 500 years ago... It was a question that everyone was asking. And that's because death was real to people. Okay, people died a lot. Uh, people died young. Uh, so the plague, for example, was we just kept returning and would wipe out literally hundreds and thousands of people around you. Uh, so death was real. And the idea of a God who would judge you was also very real to people. And so the biggest question on people's minds was, well, how, how can I be right with God? If I, if I might die tomorrow and God's going to judge me, how can I be right with him? 
Now, the answer at the time was provided by the church. Now, there was only one type of church at the time in the 1500s. It was the, it was the Roman Catholic Church. That was pretty much the only church that you could get to. And this is effectively what they said. They said, your sin will leave you in the wrong with God, and so you need the grace of God to be right with him. Now that sounds exactly what we would say, doesn't it? And it is what we would say. Sin is the problem, and grace is the solution. Now they believed that, the church at the time believed that, but what they thought about those truths, uh, those things, is the key thing for us as we kind of paint this backdrop. For For the Roman Catholic Church, you see, grace was a product. So you had to go and get it at church. So you would go there, you, you, would, you would meet the lovely uh, shop assistant known as the priest, and you would confess your sins to the priest, and he would give you the grace that you need for that day. So almost like a, a can of Coke. He would say, okay, here's the fuel you need to get through the rest of the day, and if you die this afternoon, don't worry, you'll be fine. Now the service was in Latin, nobody really knew what was happening, nobody, nobody spoke Latin at, uh, in Germany at that time, but it didn't matter. As long as you were there and trusted what was going on uh, and trusted that that left you in the right with God, then, then you would be absolutely fine. Now, the thought behind that practice, that, that, the idea that, that grace was a product that you went to get, you went to purchase, was, was people are basically good people. So not quite good enough to meet God's standards, but as your heart seeks to do good, as you're decent towards others, as you go to church, you go through the motions, you confess your sins, you take communion, then, then, then grace is given to you. Enough grace to present you right before God. Okay, so the idea is this. If you want to sum up the idea, it's this. Try your best. Try your best and God will do the rest. Okay, try your best and God will will do the rest. It's a bit like an exam. As long as you go to church, you, you do the things you, 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 you know, th- that are good, then you score 70% and you present that before God, you present this 70% paper before God and he, he says, well, do you know what? I've seen they've tried their best, so I'm going to make it up to 100%. There you go, you're through, you're, you're into heaven. That, that, was the, that was the idea at the time. Now, that developed to the point where it all became a bit like an online shop. So you didn't necessarily, at some point, need to be in church to receive your grace. You just had to pay a priest. So you pay, you pay the church, you pay the priest, and then you could receive your grace. And, um, and this, this developed even to the point where if you weren't sure whether your loved ones had done enough, they'd passed, your loved ones had passed away, you weren't quite sure they'd done enough, you could pay for them. Even though they were dead, you could pay for them, uh, get some grace for them. Somehow, as you paid the money, your loved ones would gradually, though dead, make it into uh, heaven if they weren't there already. Now, one, one guy used to, quite famous, used to walk through the street shouting, place your penny in the drum, the pearly gates open, and in strolls mum. Uh, that was kind of his, his thing. It was, you know, the idea is just like bailing somebody out of jail. That was the, the thing. Now, 
despite that, you know, that was the way things were done, 1500s, pretty much across Europe. How can I be right with God? Answer, try your best. And God will do the rest. Now the problem, though, is whilst everyone accepted this and everyone did this, they spent their lives filled with fear. Isn't that extraordinary? Now that's because trying your best is a very subjective thing, isn't it? That, you know, what, what is your best? Yeah, what if I, I haven't really tried enough? What if I confess my sin, uh, sorry, I don't confess my sin before, so I don't make it to church that morning and then I die that afternoon? You see, there was absolutely no assurance at all. And so there was no joy. There was no joy among the people. Now, one of those people that we, we saw in the video was a man called Martin Luther. And as we saw one day, uh, one day he came face to face with death, literally in a thunderstorm. And that morning, he had not been to church. He had not confessed his sin. So how would he be right with God? In a moment of desperation, he cried out to St. Anne and he said, look, if I survive, then I'll become a monk. And he survived, and so he became a monk. And what he did is he studied the Bible, and then he taught the Bible at university, and he strived at that time to try his very, very best to live a good and upright life. But what was interesting is that question of how he could be right with God never really escaped him. You see, the more he tried to live a good life, the more anxious he became. The more he thought, have I done enough? Yeah, how could I possibly be right with God? And as he did that, as he became more and more anxious, he, he started to question this kind of system that the church had set up. You know, was it actually right to pay money to receive grace? And to such a point that 500 years ago, last month, he hammered these questions to, to the public square for debate. Now, as you can imagine, that started some debate. And whilst that was happening, Luther continued to search for an answer. Um, sorry, here's a picture of him, by the way, uh, if you don't know uh, what he looks like. Um, he searched for an answer, continued to search for an answer, and then God opened his eyes to this verse in Romans 1. It says, In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith, from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. See, suddenly it dawned on Luther that, that to be right with God is not a question of how hard you tried, it is a question of whether you trusted, whether you had faith in the good news not on what you did, but on what Jesus had done. From first to last. Salvation was nothing to do with your works. It was about faith in Jesus. Now this was a massive turning point. Luther started to write about this. He wanted people to know about it. And the church wanted him in prison. But he went into hiding and he wrote, the, he wrote extensively, he translated the Bible so that people might stop trusting in themselves to make them right with God and trust in Jesus instead. And this was known, this is what was known as the Reformation. 
Now, I think that title was used because his intent was he wanted to reform, he wanted to change the church through, through writing. But really, at its heart, what Reformation really meant was rediscovery. It was a rediscovery of the gospel of grace that had been lost and that no one really knew about. Now, whilst it all started uh, with this guy in Germany, that, that rediscovery just kind of swept through hundreds of years, through many, many people, uh, and eventually it made its way here to England. So here we are today as a church, and we hold to the gospel truths that came out of the Reformation. And all I want to do this morning is look at those gospel truths, the ones that Martin Luther discovered 500 years ago, and the truths that we see here in Ephesians 2. Very simply, there are three of them that we're going to look at. Here's how they go. We cannot save ourselves. God saves us completely, and we are saved for good works. Okay, those are the three things I want us to see. The first one is we cannot save ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. Now that was what people were, of course, led to believe, that they could save themselves. You, know, you try your best, and God will do the rest. In effect, save yourself. You take the, 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 the step. It starts with you. You try your best, and you'll be saved. Now, the problem there was that sin was not really seen as a problem. It was just some little things that you did here and there, some little things that you do wrong. And so, of course, you could fix them. You do X, Y, and Z. You try your best, and the small problem of your sin will just be overcome. But the discovery of the Reformation, what we see here, is that sin is a big problem that we cannot fix. Have a look at verse 1 of chapter 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and your sins. You were dead in them. You see, it does not say you just have a bad temper. It doesn't say you have a problem with lust. It doesn't say you slip into gossip. And if you sort those things out, that will be okay. If you just sort your temper out, you'll be fine. No, outside of Christ, the problem of our sin is that we're dead in it. Now that doesn't mean, obviously, that you're physically dead. You walk and talk and breathe. It means that in life you can't do anything but sin. That's a fact about dead people, isn't it? You can't move from where you are. So as dead people, all we do is we live lives that reject God, that follow the ways of the world, that, that the ways of Satan. Just look at verse 2. All right, let's, let's read from verse 1 again. As, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live, when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, that's Satan, the spirit who is at now at work in those who are disobedient. Now you might think, oh, okay, it's those who are disobedient, but look at verse 3. It's all of us. All of us were lived among them at one time. All of us are trapped in our disobedience. So we live lives that reject God. Just follow the ways of the world. Just does what everybody else does. Now you might not think, you might think to yourself, well, that's not bad. You know, I'm a decent person. You know, I'm not disobedient. But, you know, that was certainly the case in the 1500s. People did genuinely try their best. 
But what Luther realised was, was for spiritually dead people, even our best is disobedience. Because where we think we can save ourselves, where we think you know, we're doing good things that count towards God, we're not trusting in Christ. And that's what God wants. So Luther described this as, as being turned in on yourself. Because you're always looking to yourself. Whether you look to yourself for your own salvation or you look to yourself for your own pleasure. Either way, that's, that's disobedience. It's apart from God. And that has horrific consequences. You see there in verse 3. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our, of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. See, we're dead in our sin and we deserve God's wrath. Do you see, sin is a big, big problem. And so we cannot save ourselves. You know, it's a bit like this. Think of it like this. Okay, I thought about bringing a real one in, but I didn't want to upset the vegetarians amongst us. But. <laughs> But look, it, it, it won't surprise you to learn that this chicken cannot move. It's dead. There is one place this chicken is heading, that is the oven. It is consumption. And it can't do anything to get out of that. It cannot, it cannot hop up, you know, step up and hop up and run out the kitchen. It can't, it's dead. <laughs> You know, or think of it like it's like a, a, a beggar that's committed so many crimes that they're in prison, facing execution, waiting execution. I mean, you're as good as dead. There's nothing you can do in there. You have nothing to offer. Nothing will get you out of there because your crimes are so bad. And this is our natural state outside of Jesus. This is, this is our natural state. Now, I want you to know it's particularly, again, I've highlighted this, but verse 3, this is all of us. All of us are dead in our sin. In the 1500s, the view held by the church was that only if you'd done something really bad, really, really awful, only if you'd like murdered someone or something, only then would you go straight to hell. Yeah, only then were you in that kind of prison cell. And there was no chance of someone paying to get you out. And for everyone else, as long as sin didn't look that bad then it wasn't that bad. But what Luther discovered here, Ephesians 2, he realised that everyone's deserving of hell. No one can save themselves. All of us are dead in our sin. And so without a doubt, sin is not just a big problem, it is our problem, it's my problem. I am my problem. Yeah, when, when, when Luther discovered this, he said, this is what he said, he said, sin and sin boldly. Now, he wasn't saying, just do what you like. What he was saying is, be honest. Recognise that you are, you by yourself, me, me, I am a dead sinner on my own. And I deserve wrath. And when we realise this, it should give us this real sense of humility. You know, think about the story that, a story that Jesus told 
of the Pharisee and the tax collector. I don't know if you can look this up in Luke 18 if you want to when you get home. But basically, you've got these two people, a Pharisee and a tax collector, and they both stand before God and they pray. And the Pharisee stands there before God. And this is what he says. He has some faith in God because he prays, but he says, I thank you, I thank you that I am not like other people. Robbers and evildoers and adulterers. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I have. And then you get this tax collector who stood at a distance and he wouldn't even look up to heaven. But he, he, he beat his breast and he says, this is what he said, have mercy on me, a sinner. You see, the tax collector could see the enormity of his own problem. And at that point, he could not look down on anyone else. He could only look down on himself. He himself is his greatest problem. Now, look, just think about how knowing that would make a difference in your own home. You know, when people don't relate to us as they should, you know, when, when children disobey, this text says, I should not be shocked. I should not be disgusted at that. Okay, I should not be shocked by it. They're dead in their sin and I should not be disgusted because I'm just as bad. I am my biggest problem. My sin before God is my biggest problem. See, a big view and a right view of our own sin, my standing before God would result in just greater humility towards others. I shouldn't be shocked and I shouldn't be disgusted. Or perhaps look at it another way. Consider a different question. What, what, what do I worry about? I, I guess that if I worry about my work or my money or my health, that it, of course it's not wrong to worry about those things, but if those things consume me, if that's all I'm ever concerned about, then I guess my biggest problem is it's outside of me. But again, this text says, my biggest problem, by far, is inside of me. My biggest problem is me. And so everything else, actually, is the least of my worries. If I'm naturally dead in my sin, then the question of how I can be right with God, that's my biggest worry. I guess that question should hound the non-Christian, shouldn't it? Now, if you are not a Christian here, please know that there is nothing you can do to save yourself and the wrath of God is coming. Please think about that. Particularly as we come on to our next point. Though we deserve God's wrath, and this is the only reason that it doesn't hound the Christian, though we deserve God's wrath, he has saved us from it. He saved us. This is the second thing we see. This morning, God saves us completely. God saves us completely. God saves us completely. That's the second thing we see. Now, look, I love. I have like this is possibly one of my favourite kind of moments in the Bible. I love the way verse four starts. See what Paul is saying. He's going, "We're dead in our sin. We're deserving of wrath." Verse four, but. 
cup because of his great love for us. God, but God. But God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, it is by the grace of God that you have been saved. God has saved us. When we could do nothing, when we could not even attempt to do our best, he saved us. When we were dead in our sin, he made us alive. When we were dead, he made us alive. And more than that, he has exalted us. Just have a look at verse 6. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Do you see, we have everything that we might know that God saves us completely, that it's all by his grace, that he's done it everything. And he really has the picture here of, of us being with Christ, being in Christ, so made alive, and then exalted, and then with him, spiritually, very, very real in a spiritual way, it, that is like, a, that is like a, a marriage taking place. We're effectively married to, to, to Jesus. And it, more than that, it's like a marriage where you get the two extremes. So some royal, some kind of millionaire royal, goes and gets the, the beggar from the prison. Okay? And we know, don't we, already, that she has nothing to offer. She's, she's committed a ton of crimes that she cannot pay back. She has nothing, absolutely nothing. She's as good as dead. She's about to be executed. And the royal prince goes and takes her out of there, brings her from death, and gives her life. But not just on the streets. He doesn't just leave her on the streets and says, well, okay, now you can live in in shame of all you've done. No, he marries her. And at the moment he marries her, all the debt, all all the shame is transferred to the prince. And everything the prince has now belongs to the beggar. She becomes a royal with him. And in his eyes, she was always constantly beautiful and spotless. There's nothing that she can do to make him love her any less. Now, our prince, of course, is Jesus Christ. That's what God has done for us in sending his son, in sending him specifically to the cross. That's where Jesus dies and he takes our sin. So when he dies on the cross, he's he's dying for our sin. And as he's resurrected, he gives us his perfect life, a new life. God has done that. He, He has saved us completely. We couldn't do any of that. He's done it. And now, in Christ, we are as close to God as as we possibly could be. Do you see, you can never, ever, if you're with Christ now, you can never, ever move away from him. You can never, ever be distant from him. He can never love you any less than he does now or any more than he does now. You're spotless before his throne. He saved you completely. He did it all. Now that is a stark difference, isn't it, to the the mechanism of the, the system of grace set up by the, by the church at the time. You know, that was like a, it was like a vending machine. So, so you put your money in, you put your effort in, and out comes your can of Coke, you know, your, your product of, of, of grace. But here we see, though, not, not only do you not do anything, 
God does it completely. But here we see grace is not a product. It's, it's so much bigger than that. It, it's not something just to fuel you through the day. It is totally free gift of love that comes to us not in a can, but in the person of his son, in the person of God's son. We, so we get the whole of Jesus. Everything that Jesus has is ours. His perfect life, his relationship with his father, everything is given to us. And as we've said, that means salvation is nothing of us. We can contribute nothing ever. Nothing throughout the day will ever make you closer to God because you've got the whole of his son. And so we contribute nothing. Look at verse 8. For it's by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not by works. So that no one can boast. You know, no one, none of us who trust in Christ can stand here and say, I thank you, Lord, that I am not like other men. You cannot, you cannot boast. You just simply can't do that. Because it is all of his grace. And if that's where we're left, then of course, all the glory goes to God. Now, Luther and others summed it up. They, they said look. We're saved by grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone, to the glory of God alone. He's done the whole thing. And it's interesting, isn't it? I, I mean, the faith here, even the faith, so even the step of trusting Christ is a gift. It's given to you. That faith is worked in you by God. Grace alone, in Christ alone, by faith alone, to the glory of God alone. God has saved us completely. And I, I really I hope you can see that at the same time, you know, at the same time this gives you the attitude of the tax collector, where you're saying, have mercy on me, simultaneously it gives you a huge amount of assurance in the Christian life. You know, people in the 1500s were filled with fear. They were constantly wondering if they'd done enough. But we know that God has done it all. Nothing depends on us. And so we, we just set free to be joyful. We, we can be full of joy. Because we know we're right with God. And then we can spend the rest of our life just fleeing to Christ. You know, it's all about him now. So, so Luther once wrote this in his work. He said, are you despondent? Flee to Christ. Are you in despair? Flee to Christ. Are you struggling with sin? Then flee to Christ. Are you proud? Flee to Christ. As long as we look to Christ, then we're assured there's nothing that we need to do, nor we can do. It's all of God. And do you know what? The one thing you are to do with this truth, not, not to save yourself, but with this truth, there is one positive, one positive command in the whole of Ephesians chapter 3, and it's this, remember. Remember. Remember that God has saved us completely. So Luther once said, this is his one temptation, that he doesn't think he has a gracious God. Isn't isn't that our temptation? If we think that, if we forget the grace of God, then what happens is is when we fall short, we, we start to place our guilt in other pleasures. So we might bury ourselves in in work, just trying to busy our hearts, trying to hide away from the realities of what we're really like. We, we, we might try to make ourselves more attractive, thinking that, 
that, that it will make us more loved? Or, or we indulge in spending money or we indulge in, in pornography thinking it will make us feel better? I mean, you could go on and on, but, but if you remember, if you remember that God has saved you completely, do, do you see that is just so freeing? free to be full of joy and then we will serve God in all we do and this is the last thing we see this morning God saves us for good works God saves us for good works okay so once once Martin Luther started to write about the fact that that it's God who saves and people started to believe it the accusation that came back was, um, was well, you, you, people, you know, Luther, you just don't care about being good. So if God has saved you and you've done nothing, then why not just live how you like? Why not just do what you want? You know, surely they were afraid, if people believe this, then the whole of Europe would just descend into chaos. But Luther, he, he fought back and he, 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 he said, look, saving grace... So you don't do anything. You're not saved by your works, but saving grace drives you to then do good works. It drives you actually to to live for God, which is the best possible life you could live. That's exactly what we see here in verse 10. This is the reason God saves us. Verse 10. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You see, what's going on is he's saying, look, you were created to live for God. And in saving us, in bringing you back from the dead when you rebelled against God, you've got this new life. And so now you, you're supposed to live for him. You're, you, you, you were alive for him. And so we carry out the good works that he's prepared for us to do. You now live for God. Now, just to clarify, those good works do not save us. We're not saved by them, we're saved for them. I guess a good way of, to think of this is, is uh, like a house, or, or to use the kind of illustration of, um, you know, the, the one that we've been going with, it's, it's a palace, the royal palace. So the front door, if you like, is the salvation, okay? And as, what's happened is you've been brought through that front door, Okay, not of yourself. You, the, the door was open for you. You were, as a dead person, you were carried through that front door. Nothing you did got you through there. It was open for you, carried through. But now, you live in the house. You live in the palace. You live completely securely. Nothing's ever going to remove you from there. You're in there, but you've got this whole new life to live. And there's tons of work to do in the house. And you, you know what? You don't even do it because you're grateful you don't even think oh thank you so much i better do something for you now no it's just part of enjoying your new life with god that's that is your new life in this house in this palace it is god's grace in action for you to do god good good works that's what we're saved for now the obvious question is well what are these good works that that have been prepared for us uh, to do well i think the rest of ephesians would say it's just the way you relate to others in normal everyday life to speaking the truth in love at church it's being kind and compassionate to other christians it's forgiving people it's it's sacrificing everything for your wife 
submitting to your husband, not exasperating your children, working hard at work even when your boss is not watching you. Yet these are the things that have been prepared in advance for you to do. This is the way people are supposed to live. And as someone who's been saved by God, you, you now live for God in all of them. And that, isn't that great? Because it just means, very unlike the 1500s, being a Christian is not about going to church. It's about living for God in everything. And more than that, it's about the ordinary. It's just about the normal, mundane things where you're, you're just giving glory to God and serving him in those mundane things, in those ordinary things of everyday life. And so I guess that means the Christian life is not simply about being right with God, it's about enjoying God, enjoying him. That's surely now, uh, as Christians, our chief aim, isn't it? To glorify God who has saved us and enjoy him forever. Now, if that's right, then we know, don't we, that the Reformation is never really over. So, sure, these things happened 500 years ago. They were big events. Sure, it's really easy, isn't it, to look at the state of the church then and think, oh, they had it all wrong. But if our aim is, is, is as people who know this gospel, if our aim is, not, is now to live for God in everything, then we ourselves need to constantly rediscover the gospel remember the gospel and allow God to continuously carry out reform, change in our own hearts. The Reformation is never really over. Let's pray. Father, we uh, recognise this morning that every one of us here are, uh, are sinners in need of mercy and many of us here are people have, who've received an abundance of your grace in your Son, who now have everything that he has. Father, pray that you would help us to remember this and to live lives that are worthy of our calling, that carry out the good works that you've prepared for us in advance to do. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Great. So let's just have um, we, we just an opportunity to talk together on your tables. You might want to move if you're on your own. Um, uh, you, you might want to move to, to talk with others. Um, you might, if, you, if this makes you really uncomfortable, please don't worry about it. You can do something else. Go get a, grab a drink or something. Um, and then we'll, we'll just open it up for questions and discussion if that's going to be helpful for people. So let's just have a couple of minutes. Okay. Um, sorry to interrupt your discussions. Um, is it? Uh, please, please do, please do carry them on after the service. That would be that's that's that'd be great. Um, but um, are there any? Is there any kind of? Anybody have any thoughts or comments or questions that that will be helpful for people, helpful for everybody to hear, or everybody to kind of think more about? Anyone else? Uh, anyone at all?
Oh, Elizabeth, sorry. This might be um, anticipating next week, but I think what always comes out for me when I think about the Reformation and Martin Luther is how the church got itself into that situation, getting away from what's very obviously clear in the words of the Bible. And I think it just brings back the importance that everybody actually needs to read the Bible for themselves and to come back to the words that are in front of us, um, which is maybe a bit more related to next week than yeah, but today. It is, but it's helpful. Thank, thanks, Elizabeth. Yeah. And I, I think, so here, what, what we try to, that is why um, we try to encourage, I don't think I said it this morning, sorry, <laughs> but um, I, I, don't want, I don't want you to listen to me or the person preaching here. Okay? I want you to look at the Bible. That's, that's, what we, that's why I'm constantly saying, look at verse 1, look at verse 2. And, um, you know, we, we, I, I just think it's horrendously dangerous just to kind of assume. Because it was interesting, was it? Like everybody, the, the, the church has set up this thing up and everybody just went along with it. And nobody could really understand what was going on. But they were like, okay, well, this is the way. And it was just, I mean, the, the consequences are horrific. Um, and so, yeah, thanks, Elizabeth. We must always, you know, we must always do that for ourselves and in church and as a church, always looking at what the Bible says. And actually, I think... You know, again, this will come out next week, but always be prepared to, to, to be challenged and changed as well. So, you know, we, we I, I think so often we just kind of assume that we, we know what the Bible says, but we should look at it carefully that, and, and with, a, with a heart that is willing, if it's right, for us to be changed under the word of God. Does that make sense? Um, but yeah, thanks, thanks Elizabeth. That's, that's great, great thought. Uh, just a, a thought, really. Uh, there's a proverb that says, buy the truth and sell it not. And it just occurs to me that uh, what you've taught us this morning, Ben, is really, really crucial in terms of our understanding of the gospel. Mm. And getting hold of this teaching um, is really important for all of us to really grasp what this is about because in Martin Luther's day you had the established church and then he came up with what the Bible was teaching and there's a big conflict. Uh, the fact is we're surrounded by loads of churches, you know, um, all different groups, different religions as well. Um, and this doctrine is, is vital in terms of what sets the gospel of the Lord Jesus apart. Mm. You know, and so it's really important that we understand this. We need to get it in our heads as well as, uh, and in our hearts. Mm. You know, because um, this is wonderful. Mm. <laughs> this wonder, it's a wonderful message, isn't it? That we are made right with God, mm. not on the basis of what we can do, but on the basis of what Jesus has done. And it's simply by believing and trusting and following. This is liberty, you know. And 
The old medieval church was in bondage, but there's lots of religious people today in bondage. There are people today going to Mass, confessing their sins, thinking a man can forgive them. And, uh, and people are trying everything to, to, to impress God. And uh, this is just wonderful. But I don't have to impress him. Mm. You know? Because mm. Jesus has done it all. Mm. And it's a free gift. And it's mine and it's yours if you love the Lord. Mm. It's just fantastic. Mm. Buy the truth. Don't sell it. Don't let it go, folks. Get a hold of it. Keep it. Mm. And love it. Mm. Yeah. yeah, thanks Richard. No, I, I think that, that's the... I, in one sense, the, the, the biggest danger for us is, is we ourselves drifting from that. You know? And it, it's, it's really sobering to hear that, like, you, you hear stories of this all the time where, you know, there, there are people and there are churches that, that once believed the gospel and now, are now really are nowhere. And, and, you know, the greatest challenge to us is for us to remember, for us to, which I think is what you're saying, Richard, for us to remember and to, you know, and, and to keep watching our own hearts. Um, yeah, great. Okay, anything else? Jimmy. Thank you, Sam. Um, I think you rightly said that God saves us completely and he saves us for good works. But oftentimes you find when you become a Christian, uh, the good works don't immediately follow or they don't follow mm. completely. Yeah. How, how should we think about that? Yeah, that, yeah Jimmy, that's, that's a great question. And I, I think the, um, um, effectively, the question you're asking is, is what the, the book of Ephesians answers, I think. So the whole, the whole book of, if, if you wanted to sum up the book of Ephesians, it is, it is this is become who you are. Um, so if you look, if you look at the um, the things that he's asking you to do, it's always he's, he's always saying do them increasingly um, and and ongoing. You know, um, uh, so for example, lo- love love your wife as, as Christ loved the church. It's it, it, it's something that um, that is supposed to be done constantly and and always and and always increasingly sacrificially. So. Um, I think, you know, to, to offer you some encouragement, God knows that we're slow to change. He, I think he, he expects us to change gradually. Um, and I think the way that Ephesians kind of tackles that is, it, is that, you, you know, you become who you are. Does that make sense? So if you, the, the, the first half of Ephesians very clearly tells us, look, we're, we're right before God, we're clothed, in, in the righteousness of Christ. So we're perfect in every way before God. And now, I am, I, I, am, I am perfectly right before God, but simultaneously I'm a sinner. I'm far short of how I see myself in glory. Far, far short of it. And yet, um, I'm to gradually become more that person, more like Jesus, if you like. Um, yeah. Um, so... I think, I think, Jimmy, you know, we shouldn't be discouraged. Um, we, should, we should be um, encouraged. And uh, 
and remember the gospel. The gospel is the thing that's going to change us. That, that's the thing, the mistake that I think people often make, that we want to just try harder. Um, but actually, we, we, we look at the gospel and become more like Christ. Somebody recently once described it to me as, um, you know how, you know when your kid first starts to walk and um, like literally they kind of take a step off the table and fall flat on their face. And the parents are, at that point, and they're not like, oh, what a useless kid. You know, they're like, wow, they took a step. Isn't that amazing? Though they didn't really. It's like, this is amazing. And in one sense, you've got to remember, you know, God's your father who, who knows and sees and... Uh, and it's just so you know, rejoicing over every kind of little step that we that we take. Does, does that make sense? Yeah. Um, okay. Anything else? Great. Okay. Let's sing. Uh, we're going to sing this great song. Um, hopefully, kind of sums up what we've been saying. Who, O oh Lord, could save themselves? Um, the answer is, is no one, but God's grace is deeper uh, than our sin. Let's stand and sing. Really, really good to be together this morning. Great to see you. Please do stick around if you're able to, and uh, I think there's plenty of um, tea and coffee left. And uh, let's finish by praying together, shall we? Let's pray. Father, we pray that out of his glorious riches, your glorious riches, uh, that God may strengthen us with power through his spirit in our inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. And we pray that being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that, ye, that we may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.